Well, grab your Bibles, open them to Job chapter 19. Amazing chapter uh, in this book. If you're joining us for the first time, then you're joining us in the middle of a series looking um, through this book, the book of Job. Uh, And it's a book in the Bible that deals with the issue of God and suffering. And so far we've met Job himself. Job was a a good man. He was a godly man. Uh, We're told that he was filled with integrity. He loved God. And yet Job was a man who suffered unimaginable pain. And the vast majority um, of the book is a poetic dialogue between Job and his three pals. So he's got these three friends called Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. And they're having this discussion trying to figure out why it is that God has allowed this to happen. Now Job's three friends all think the same thing. They think that Job is suffering because God is punishing him for some sin that he is not confessing. And so what they say to Job is just horrible, it's brutal and it's false. They speak, but their advice is useless. And yet, as as Job responds, as he responds to each of the the friends' useless counsel, you see in Job's speeches in the book that they start off very dark and very hopeless. I mean, this guy suffered just, it's unimaginable what he went through. But as he responds to his friends, as the speeches go on, he, he starts to get more and more hope. And that kind of crescendos with this wonderful hope that we're going to see in Job 19. So this chapter is, um, it ex- expresses a lot of the pain that he felt, but it also shows the hope that he held on to. Um, so here's what's happening. His pal Bildad has just told him that all the bad stuff, um, he's just told him of all the bad stuff God will do to wicked people implying that Job you are a wicked person and this is God punishing you now imagine saying that to your friend who's just lost his children that's what Bildad has said to Job and this is how Job responds chapter 19 and let me tell you this has everything to do with the message of Easter Sunday chapter 19 then Job replied how long will you torment me with and crush me with words Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourself above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. God has blocked my way so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He stripped me of my honour and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My my closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look upon me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. 
All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded. That they were written on a scroll. That they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in a rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say, how will we hound him since the root of the trouble lies in him? You should fear the sword yourselves. For wrath will bring punishment by the sword. And you will know that there is judgment. Let me pray for God's help to understand uh, this passage of scripture together. Father, we, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to us now through your word. Father, challenge us in areas of our life that we need to be challenged. Comfort us in areas of our life that we need to be comforted. Show us truth. Speak to us and give us wisdom. We ask Holy Spirit that you would make this word come to life, that it would pierce our hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our great Redeemer. Amen. Whenever um, you read the responses of Job to the useless friends of his advice, I think you see a real conflict in the mind of this suffering believer. And it's a conflict between what he feels that God is doing to him and what he knows about God, what he feels about God, and what, what he knows about God. So, so Job, he, he feels that God does not care about him. He feels that God is set against him, but he knows, he knows that that's not the God that he follows. That's not the God that he sacrificed to. That's not the God that he prayed to. And so here's what I want to do as we look at this passage, because I think this encapsulates so much of what it's like to suffer as a follower of Jesus. I want us to look first of all at what Job feels and then and just see how important emotional honesty is and how, how we empathize with those who are going through really tough times in life. But secondly, I want us to look at what Job knows and look at how important it is that we hold on to what we know about God from his word especially in hard times. So what Job feels and what Job knows. Okay, first of them, what Job feels. Job feels that God is against him. Now, we've really got to get uh, into verse 1 to 22. Um, verse 25, you can see that's a wonderful verse in the Bible. Loads of people highlight that, underline it, star it, whatever. But you must frame verse 25 with verse 1 to 22. You'll never understand how great that is without understanding the pain that this man felt. You'll never understand the greatness of the resurrection of Jesus without getting real about the pain of suffering and the despair of death. And I think we need to learn a lot of wisdom here in how Job begins his speech in chapter 19. 
because there's a form of Christianity that can seem very superficial when it comes to suffering. It's when Christians will say things to a suffering believer like, well, God is working all this out for good. And that's true. And, and that great truth needs to be embedded deep within our souls. That, that's a great truth that does need to be told. But it's when it's said in a way that just seems to kind of glibly ignore the pain and the hurt and the agony that that person is going through. There is nothing good about suffering. It is a reminder that there's something wrong with this world. You know, I talked last week about um, Jesus being at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Now, Jesus had the power to raise Lazarus from the grave. It was an amazing miracle. And Jesus knew with certainty that Lazarus was going to come out of that tomb. And yet when Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus, he's not... um, dismissive of the pain he's not just um, with his head in the clouds Jesus approaches the tomb of his dead friend filled with anger and rage and tears streaming down his face as he confronts the ugliness of death there's nothing good about it and Christians need to not pretend that there is I remember another minister called Christopher Ash, who's written some amazing stuff on the book of Job. Well worth reading if you have the time. Um, but I remember him saying that there are some Christians who, would, who had wished that Jesus had sung rather than wept at Lazarus' tomb. Usually they're people who, they're the kind of people who haven't suffered themselves yet or who are suppressing it. See, the thing about the Bible is that it does not run away from the pain and brokenness of this world. It's one of the the many reasons I just love God's word. It's so real. Every other worldview seems to try and, and to try and run away from suffering and death. No one wants to think about it because we don't have a worldview that can cope with it. The amount of folks that I chat to here in, in Charleston in the scheme, we chat about the gospel, we we'll chat about issues like suffering, even death. Uh, one of the kind of most common responses will be, well, man, that's way too heavy. And they run away, not because they can't understand, but because they don't want to think about the fact that they are going to die and that one day they are going to meet God. Let's pretend that the world is fine. Our world is fine. Even in this coronavirus situation, people are are trying to make out, you know, that, that it's fine. Saying superficial things like, well, look how, how the environment isn't being polluted. And that, that's a good thing, that the environment's not being polluted as much as it is. But that is so um, trite in light of everything that's going on. Imagine someone whose wife has just died from this virus hearing that. Let's not downplay the pain of human suffering. Job in no way does that. It's real and raw honesty. So even just look at how he begins. Verse 1. There's no let's pretend here. He's speaking to his friends. He says to them, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. Bildad has just said to him, Wicked people are punished by God. He said, along with his other pals, that Job is just getting what he deserves. And the agony, Job knows that's not true. And the agony of that falsehood just crushes him. His friends are against him. But worst of all, it feels that 
that it's not just his friends, that it feels that it's God that's set against him. Verse 6, know that God has wronged me, that God has drawn his net around me. Job feels like a hunted animal that God is pursuing. Listen to me, Bildad, you've, you've told me all the bad stuff that God does to wicked people. Well, you're right, God does do that, but you need to know this, he is not doing that to a wicked person. He's doing that to me, someone who loved him, who followed him. You see, Job thought that God, Job thought that God listened to him. But now he feels that he doesn't care. Verse 7. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. What is Job's suffering like? It's like he's out on the street, somebody's come to mug him, and rather than uh, helping him as he's crying out for help, people are just standing about filming it on their phones. It's like Job cries out violence and God is just doing nothing. He doesn't care. Verse 8 to 12, I mean, you can see... He feels that God's against him. He's stripped him of his honour. He's tearing him down. His anger's burning against him. Verse 12, he, he, he feels as if the whole army of heaven has been assembled against him. He thought he was God's friend. And he doesn't know why. Why has there been this sudden breakdown in this relationship? God has isolated him. And as a result... Everyone else seems to have isolated Job. His family, his closest friends have forgotten him. Verse 14. Job Job was a wealthy man. And now he's got nothing. It's amazing how, how many friends you can have if you've got a lot of money. But as soon as the money dries up, where are the friends? And when you suffer even, regardless of how much you have, people can leave you. People sometimes, especially if that, that suffering's extreme... People don't know what to say and they're afraid because they don't want to take on others' pain. They're living in this uh, illusion of their own comfortable bubble and that's why we don't want to talk about suffering because it shatters that illusion. And so Job's friends have bailed on him. Verse 15 and 16 speaks of his servants ignoring him. Um, It would be like someone who had hired maids and butlers that, that they were kind to every day. Remember Job's a good godly man. But now that he's lost everything, he's, he's like a beggar on the street and, and the maids and the, the butlers that used to be in his house are walking past him and they, and they see him and with all his disgusting sores and they, they want to avoid him. They don't want to go near him. Even Job's own wife can't stand him. His breath is offensive. Remember that, that he is poor, he has lost his job, he has lost his children. And he has these horrible infectious boils all over his body. In fact, he says that he just feels in verse 20 that he has nothing but skin and bones. He feels so alone. See, suffering does that. Suffering isolates. I mean, we're experiencing something of the frustration of isolation now. Well, you speak to anyone who's suffered great loss. And their isolation, their pain. It's far greater than this. But do you know what hurts him most in all of this? What hurts Job the most is not the suffering, but it's the fact that God has caused the suffering. 
Have pity on me, my friends, he says. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? It hurts because I love God. I've given up everything for him. And yet he seems to be treating me as an unforgiven sinner. As the worst of humanity. See, this is what Job is feeling. This is real heartfelt pain. Now, some of you who who are Christians, you can relate. The person who's had the miscarriage, the person who's lost their parents, the person who's caring for their partner who has dementia, the person who's been abused, the person whose child has died, That's not hypothetical. Those are real people watching this live stream right now. Why? God, if you were my friend, why would you want me to be hurt this way? If you feel that, you are not alone. Job is one of the godliest men in the whole Bible and he felt that. And it's not strange to think that. And you shouldn't be ashamed even to think that. God doesn't encourage us to suppress this. He he seems to be encouraging us to cry this out. He can take it. Even if what we cry is not true. And make no mistake, there is stuff that Job says here and all throughout his speeches that's not true. That's misguided. That he doesn't know because he's not seeing the big picture. God will correct him at the end and Job will repent and, and admit and say sorry to God but it's as if God says Job what you said was wrong but I'm glad that you said it to me which is why on the whole God commends Job and rebukes Job's friends maybe that's not where you're at just now you're you're not suffering to the extreme that Job is I'm sure we're all struggling at the moment with what's going on But you need to realise that there will be others in the church who are. And we need to not do what Job's friends did, which was give superficial, trite answers to questions that they didn't know the answer to. Nor must we do what what his other friends do, who don't feature in this book, um, because they've run away. We mustn't bolt and, and, and leave people. And increase that isolation when they're suffering. We must be there. That's what the church is there for. Paul says that we rejoice with those who rejoice in the church. And we weep with those who weep. We must be there carrying each other's burdens. That's what Job feels. He feels that God is against him. And he's very raw and he's very open and he's very honest in sharing how he feels. He cries it out, but then the next thing he does is he stops and he thinks about what he knows. So this is the second point. First point, Job feels that God God is against him. Second point, what does Job know? Job knows that God, his Redeemer, is for him. He's speaking to his friends, uh, you know, in verse 23 uh, onwards. Um, I think he's probably speaking to God as well. And I think he's probably speaking to himself, speaking these truths to his own soul. So he says in verse 23, Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. 
Look, I, I want to be vindicated, he says. I don't want the last words that people hear about me to be the lies of these so-called friends of mine. I don't want on my gravestone, here lies Job, the dirty, rotten sinner. He got what he deserved from God. It's not true. And I don't want my reputation and, and God's reputation to be tarnished with these lies. I want my testimony written down so that the world will know the truth. By the way, isn't it, um, that's his longing, isn't it wonderful that Job's prayers were answered in a way that he couldn't imagine? Because we have his words. For thousands of years, they have helped suffering believers. That's what we're reading now. But notice how, how this kind of longing changes into a certainty of what he knows. So I, I want my words uh, written on a scroll. No, no, better yet, something more permanent than a scroll. I want it in, inscribed with iron on lead. No, something even more permanent than that. I want it engraved on the rock forever. Actually, I, I need a testimony. I need a vindication that's more permanent than any writing. Well, here's what I know. Here's what I know about God. I know that I will be vindicated. That means I will be made right. I know I will be made right, not because of something that will be written down, but because I know, verse 25, I know my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. Far more permanent than engraved words is the fact that there is one in heaven who will testify for all eternity and who will make me right. Job calls him my Redeemer. Now what does that mean? You might be hearing that word for the first time. God is often described as Redeemer. Well, a Redeemer in the ancient world, and Job is a very ancient book, um, a redeemer was someone who would make a promise to you to stand in for you and help you. Uh, so, for example, if you were a widow and you were struggling to uh, make ends meet, you just lost your husband. A redeemer is someone who would care for you because they made a promise to be your redeemer. And in some cases, they would marry you and, and they would provide for you and help you. And a wonderful story of that kind of redeemer in the Bible is from the book of Ruth. If you were murdered... Your redeemer would be the one to make sure that your murder, your murderer was punished. So to redeem someone meant to vindicate them. It meant to buy them back. And Job knows God's his redeemer. His redeemer who lives forever. Verse 26 makes it clear that he is talking about God. He knows his redeemer will stand on the earth. Uh, literally, that is stand on the dust, which the commentators tell me is a reference to Job's grave. On Job's grave, there won't be the tombstone that, that kind of proclaims the lies of his friends. It won't say, here lies Job, dirty, rotten sinner. The last and most permanent word on Job will be the words of his Redeemer. Here is Job, my good and faithful servant. That eternal vindication Job knows that is the God that he follows. And even more astonishing is what he goes on to say. He knows that because his Redeemer lives, he will one day meet him face to face. Verse 26, And after my skin has been destroyed, 
yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How my heart yearns within me. Oh, I'm longing, he says, for this. I have butterflies in my stomach when I think about it. I know that I'm going to come back from the dead. And I'm going to see God. So Job feels this in his suffering. He feels that God is against him. But what does he know about God? He knows, firstly, God is his redeemer. Secondly, this redeemer lives forever. And thirdly, Job will meet him even after he dies. It's an astonishing view of faith from this suffering believer because Job could not have known how true those words were. He held on to it. But here's the thing though. We can know, we can know today for absolute certain, we can know that this is true. You can know if you follow Jesus that your Redeemer lives and that he will resurrect you to new life and you will meet him and you will be right with him. You can know that. Why? Because of Easter Sunday. All Job's hope, all our hope is tied into the resurrection of Jesus. God in the Old Testament, he was called the Redeemer of Israel because he set them free from slavery in Egypt. But that redemption was just a foreshadowing of the greater redemption that he would achieve for the whole world through his son Jesus. We need to be redeemed. We need to be brought back to God. We need to be rescued, not from our suffering, though we do need to be rescued from that, but from something even more severe and dangerous, from our sin. That's the truth. We are all sinners who have rebelled against the God who made this world, the God who made us. And so the biggest problem in our lives, without Jesus, the biggest problem in your life is not the virus, and it's not family problems or money issues, as big as and important as they are, the biggest problem is that God is angry at your sin. And that's so serious that it carries with it eternal consequences. But this is the good news. We have a Redeemer. Jesus He rescues us. He redeems us. He buys us back to God. He rights the wrong of our sin. He pays the debt of our sin through his death on the cross. He suffers to redeem us. You know, look at um, verse 11, what Job said. He said that um, God's anger burnt against him. That was not true for Job. But that was true for Jesus on the cross. As he took God's anger for all my sin. What did it cost our redemption? It cost the blood of the Son of God. You see, we can feel that we are being treated as God's enemy, but stop and think about what you know. Speak to your soul. What more could God give to prove to you that he is for you, Christian? To prove that he is not your enemy. He gave up the most precious resource in the universe, the blood of his son, to redeem you. 
This is what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. See that? He was chosen and, uh, before the creation of the world. So before Job's suffering, his Redeemer was already in place. But it's been revealed in these last times for our sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and your hope are in God. Jesus died to redeem us and three days later he rose from the grave. Our Redeemer, therefore, is not dead, but he is alive. And because he lives, that changes everything. God made the promise that he would save us. And the resurrection is the proof that he has kept that promise. That is why through tears and anguish and confusion and hurt, we have hope. Always we have hope. Oh, you may feel far, but do not base your standing before God on what you feel. If you're in Jesus, do not base your standing before God on what you feel. On what you feel. Let your standing before God be based on what he has said. Because that's what's true. What's in here is not always true, but what's in here is always true. A great example, I remember of this, was um, the, the theologian Martin Luther. He's one of my heroes. Um, and he used to say that whenever he felt far from God, that he wasn't at peace with God. Um, or whenever he felt something that he knew wasn't true, he, he would bring scripture to mind. So if he felt he wasn't at peace with God, he would take his knife out and on their kitchen table, um, much to his wife's annoyance, he would carve on the table Romans 5 verse 1, which says you are now at peace with God. And he would say to himself, what I feel in here is not true, but what I've written here is true. And so if we are counselling friends in the, the pits of suffering, we don't give trite answers, we don't pretend it's fine, we don't run away, but also we don't shy away from what we do know. We're there and there's a time where we've got to be silent, but in the times that we speak, we must with all wisdom and sensitivity and, and empathy share what we know is true, not what we feel. Because if you're in Jesus, God is not against you. God is for you. Not because you are worthy, but because Jesus was worthy. As the Redeemer, he has achieved this. He, he has brought us into God's family. Just, um, if you've got a Bible, turn me to Romans 8. I had to go to this passage at some point in Job. And I, I mean, it's just one of the most amazing passages in the Bible. Um, Romans chapter 8, and we'll read from verse 31. Romans 8. Verse 31. This is true for you. No matter how many times you've sinned or what you've gone through, what Paul says here is true. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? There's lots of things and lots of stuff that will be against you. 
But if God is for you, none of that will be successful. Just look at what he says in verse, this is why, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now, see the list of those things. Those are pretty big deals, right? That's, that's pretty extreme suffering. And, and Paul is writing this to suffering Christians. But he wants us to know that no matter what is thrown at us, it will not separate us from the love of Christ. Trouble. If I am overwhelmed with trouble and anxiety, Jesus' love will not leave me. Hardship. If I am struggling because life is hard, Jesus' love will not leave me. Persecution. Even if people make fun of me or I'm shunned by others, Jesus' love will never leave me. Famine. Even if me and my family are starving to death, Jesus' love will not leave me. Nakedness. Even if I am humiliated before others, Jesus' love will not leave me. Sword. Even if I'm killed, Jesus' love will not leave me. As it is written, for your sake, for, for your sake, God, we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Will this separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. That is true. Oh, you won't feel that though if you've just lost a child you don't feel more than a conqueror but you are because the victory you need was not achieved by you but was achieved by him our redeemer and our redeemer lives and he has complete control and sovereignty over everything. And he loves you even though he feels far, he is not. Even though it feels sometimes that he might be unsympathetic, he is not. Even though it feels that he's not listening, he is. Nothing can separate us from, us, from his love. So hold on to what we know to be true. The resurrection of Jesus confirms that Romans 8 is true. Because one day we are going to see him. One day Brock is going to meet his saviour in the flesh. And he will raise us to new life with a new body that is incorruptible. And all the pain that he has let us go through in this life will be used to serve our glory in the next. Because he lives, our pain is not pointless. Even though just now we don't know what the point is, it is never pointless. And we know that's true because our Redeemer lives. The final two verses in, in Job 19 are not this confident hope, but actually Job, in light of this hope, now turns to his friends and he gives them a warning. Job knows he's safe because he knows his Redeemer, but his friends are not. They don't believe in this undeserved suffering. They don't believe in undeserved grace. If you trust Jesus, God is for you, but if you don't, then the opposite is true. So this Easter... Come to him and find refuge. 
find life, find redemption. And then what Paul writes at the end of Romans 8 will be true for you. Nothing in all creation will be able, able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know my Redeemer lives. And we will see him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Our Redeemer lives. Sin has been defeated. Death has been destroyed. Jesus has won the victory. And he is on the throne. And we will see him. And every tear will be wiped away. We don't know now why you allow certain things to happen. And it can sometimes feel that we are not friends. But Father, we know from the truth of your word that we are friends, we are children. Jesus, you're our brother. We know that you care. We know that you're for us. We know that you have justified us. We know, therefore, that nothing can separate us from your love. And so please, would you help us to hold on to what we know and help us to help others hold on to what they know. May we bear one another's burdens, not feed isolation, but may we be there for one another. Even in this difficult time where we're, we're absent um, in body, may we encourage one another. Thank you for the great hope that we have on Easter Sunday. Everything, everything we believe is about what we celebrate this day. So we're so grateful that you have proven to the world that Jesus is our Redeemer by raising him from the grave. May we rejoice this Sunday that we have such a Saviour. In his name we pray. Amen.